Social Media for a New Age, here to help you explore the world of social media and be present with what's happening personally, professionally and collectively in this rapidly changing world. Welcome to Social Media for a New Age with me, Katie, here to explore the world of social media. And I was interviewed last week for a podcast with Cassie called The Social Self. And she asked me a question about what did I mean by the shadow side to social media? And we're on a new moon eclipse in Scorpio today as I'm recording this and posting this. And we're in the run-up to Samhain, Halloween. And so we're in a shadowy time where things are able to be processed that are in the shadows. And I've also been really busy with work too and haven't had a chance to sit down and write this week. And I often talk about how we should recycle and reuse and remix our content. So I thought this was a perfect opportunity for me to revisit a chapter from my second book, Social Media for a New Age 2, A Digital Self-Care Guide, which has a chapter called The Shadow Side to Social Media. And I thought I would read it for you because this book really didn't get to see the light of day. I wrote it in a moon cycle at the end of 2019, um, not long after I'd had my own wake-up call to some of the aspects of social media which aren't great. I'd been really quite naive in my um, opinion of social media in many ways. I Like many people in the world, I didn't think that these big institutions, these big companies would not have our best interests at heart. So when I started to learn about addictive and persuasive design, when I found out about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and how our data was being taken and used and then used to manipulate us, really, the bottom line of it, that was a really big deal for me. And writing this book was a way of me processing what I'd found out and also sharing. I kind of see this book as my alarm bell to everyone um, to look at the, the damaging aspects of social media, be aware of what might be coming in the future so that we can navigate it well, because I still think it's an incredible tool. It's still an industry that I work in and it's still something that I enjoy very much and I enjoy working with my clients to create great content and great experiences for people in the digital and social media space. But it's important that we acknowledge and know about the shadow. So let me get into it. (laughs) 
the shadow side to social media. This addiction is an affliction programmed into us by their system. Yet addiction by design doesn't appear to be a crime. Getting users hooked like it's a lifeline, harvesting our energy, data and time. Just so they can make more dime. I want to take back what's mine. I am addicted to social media. The itch to pick it up, even though I only picked it up a few moments ago. The tightness in my tummy, the fluttering in my stomach, the anticipation as the app opens up and the screen refreshes its feed. The butterflies as I await results, be it likes, comments, new content, connection, validation appreciation, hunting for that feeling, that sensation, as I mindlessly hop from app to app, email to Facebook, Instagram to WhatsApp, coming round to the reality that I'm hunched over a small bright rectangle, noticing I'm lost in an endless scroll, forgetting what I'd come on to check or do, time lost, energy drained, cross with myself for doing it again. Learning that I was hooked on my own chemical reaction to social media was a big thing for me. Finding out that being on social media is producing dopamine and that's lighting up my system in all sorts of different ways. In similar ways to drugs like alcohol and nicotine. It started to make more sense as to why my body would crave this hit. The instinct to go hunting for it when in need of a lift even though some of this information has been sensationalised somewhat by the media. What drugs release dopamine in the brain? Research has shown that the drugs most commonly abused by humans create a neurochemical reaction that significantly increases the amount of dopamine that's released by the neurons in the brain's reward centre. And in my 20s, I loved to rave with my friends at the weekends. I was always indulging in dopamine one way or another. And I think I have some tendencies towards that. I've made sacrifices and lost friends putting some of those habits behind me. And it concerns me now that I recognise my addiction to social media and the effects that it's having on my well-being. And I wonder how this will affect my business. I'm not an expert on the science behind this, but from the research I've done, I've come to understand that dopamine is not all bad. It can help with depression, with memory, excitement and motivation. It can help us process pain and can help us be more creative. But too much of it, is linked to addictive and repetitive behaviour, attention disorders and mental health conditions. In response to this, I started to take measures to cut back on my device and social media use. Taking note of how it feels when I do. Looking at when I use my phone the most and when I use my phone the least. What drives those behaviours? And what does it feel like in my body? 
looking for what gets me to want to pick up my phone, how long I spend on it and why. Addictions and shadows are things we often can't see or we ignore because they're in a blind spot. It's uncomfortable to give some things up. Looking at our shadows can be scary and painful. This seems to be human nature. I doubt there's a human alive who doesn't have something in their life which this relates to. And I don't believe that any of us are perfect or ever will be or ever want to be perfect. Our imperfections are beautiful, but when it's hurting ourselves or others, then being honest about it can be a first step to making it better. Maybe Facebook can't see their shadows in order to own them. Maybe they don't want to. Addictive design appears to be common practice in Silicon Valley, so they may not even think they're doing anything wrong in the way that it's been designed. It makes the company money, therefore it's okay. They are opportunists and didn't necessarily foresee what it would do. But the way that Facebook's handled issues of the last year has been interesting. Side note, this was 2019 and a lot of this information was just coming to light. I remember watching when Channel 4 News were covering the Cambridge Analytica scandal. The Facebook HQ in London had gone into lockdown. The whole building was locked and the lights were off. Live on the six o'clock news, the reporter was knocking on their big glass doors while staff hid inside, pretending no one was there. This felt like a symbol of them being in the dark, not able to face up to the truth of the situation or their mistakes, choosing instead to stay hidden from their own shadow. But they say the wound is where the light gets in. So maybe there's hope for Facebook yet. There is a movement in the Tech Valley highlighting these issues and the Centre of Humane Technology is at the forefront. They say, Today's tech platforms are caught in a race to the bottom of the brainstem to extract human attention. It's a race we're all losing. The result? Addiction, social isolation outrage, misinformation and political polarisation, all part of one interconnected system called human downgrading that poses an existential threat to humanity. Our mission is to reverse human downgrading by realigning technology with our humanity. Near Ayal, author of the book Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, ironically got as hooked on such products himself, but has just released his next book called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. He writes, We can take steps now to retrain and regain our brains. To be blunt, what other choice do we have? We don't have time to wait for regulators to do something. And if you hold your breath waiting for corporations to make their products less distracting, well, you're going to pass out. As a human unicorn being on this planet, I understand how we can all make mistakes. 
It's how we handle things once we're aware of the issue that I think matters the most. As I understand it, either our response to a situation either clears or continues the karma. It got me thinking. If Facebook was a family member or a friend, and let's face it, we spend as much time, if not more, with our devices these days as we do some of our closest people, can we forgive, forget and move on? By looking at the shadow sides to social media, not only for myself, but for all of us and for Facebook itself, I hope to be part of our healing. I want to help clear the energy, get the digital sage out, roll our sleeves up, clean up, move forwards and start a new chapter, a new age. Social media and digital technology is not all bad, but I want to be aware of the pitfalls so I can kick my bad habits and use it that much more effectively. This requires some commitment and sometimes tough love too. It's so easy to get away with bad digital habits. I've been reading Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport and he recommends taking a full 30-day break before reintroducing certain technologies and social media back into your life. In his book, I discovered how the main social networks and mobile app builders had actively employed companies and consultants, including consultants from casinos and gambling houses, to find the best ways to get us addicted to their apps. They worked to find the best ways to create that addictive dopamine hit with addictive design and persuasive technology. That fluttering in my stomach, that sense of anticipation I felt when I was opening up my apps or app hopping, that physical reaction was cultivated, encouraged and programmed into my nervous system. The reaction was made stronger and stronger over time due to the repetitive nature of it. And each time I open up my phone, this action is strengthening the neural pathway and reigniting the release of dopamine or the feel-good chemicals. My body over time is changing, no longer producing these chemicals naturally, instead leaving social media to do it for me. I learned this from scientifically-minded shamanic healer and business leadership coach Sue Farmer, who I've been collaborating and working with for many years. We've got a podcast called Are You Addicted to Picking Up Your Phone? And in the New York Times, there was an article called Addictive to Screens. That's really a you problem, where they said a movement will be post-digital. A movement to be post-digital will emerge in 2020, Mr. Fogg wrote last month we will start to realise that being chained to your mobile phone is a low-status behaviour similar to smoking. And a side note, you know, we couldn't have seen what was going to come with 2020 and lockdown and how much more reliant we would become on technology in that year following. Maybe Facebook and co. didn't really think about what they were doing to us long-term by getting us all so hooked. But with a reported three billion plus investment into virtual reality and new platform horizon, 
I hope they're being careful and consulting with psychologists to see what impact this is having or may have on our brains. As more studies start to emerge, it's important that we consider the risks. A small yet significant study involving 47 healthy preschool children between three and five years, 27 girls and 20 boys, found structural differences in their brains caused by screen-based media. The children exposed to more screen time had lower structural integrity of white matter tracts in their brain. White matter tracts are very important as they support language and other developing literacy skills, including imagery and executive function and mental control and self-regulation. Researchers can't yet definitively determine whether screen time will create long-term neurodevelopmental risks, but they do strongly urge parents to adhere to screen-based recommendations. Addictive by design. Tristan Harris is the man behind the Centre for Humane Technology. In an interview by CNN Business, how tech companies are addressing screen addiction, journalist Lisa Ling asks Harris, so this compulsiveness that we feel when we look at our devices, you're saying that's by design? Harris replies, Behind the screen are a hundred, in some cases thousands of engineers who go to work every single day and their job is to figure out how can I keep you hooked, using it for as long as possible, as frequently as possible and to make sure that you come back tomorrow. To reiterate this, Sean Parker, the founding president of Facebook, spoke at an event in 2017 about the attention engineering adopted by his former company. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means we need to give, sort of give you a little bit of dopamine. A little bit of a hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. When I reach for my phone, I now know to think, oh, hi, little dopamine hunter. I talk to this part of myself and I ask her what she's looking for when she's on the hunt. She's often looking for connection, approval and validation. In psychology today, they state that the opposite of addiction is connection. And new addiction research brings surprising discoveries. My social media addiction is at its most active when I'm by myself for long periods of time. As someone who's single and has lived alone for much of the past decade, living alone, working alone and often travelling alone, I have periods of time where much of my connection to my friends is through my mobile device and through social media. This, unbeknownst to me, created an addiction that I'm now actively needing to manage and which causes me some concern considering it's also directly linked to my work. 
And if social media does exist, it would be a type of internet addiction. And that is a classified disorder. In 2011, Daria Cuss and Mark Griffiths from Nottingham Trent University in the UK analysed 43 previous studies on the matter and conclude that social media addiction is a mental health problem that may require professional treatment. They found that excessive use was linked to relationship problems, worse academic achievement and less participation in offline communities – and found that those who could be more vulnerable to a social media addiction included those dependent on alcohol, the highly extroverted, and those who use social media to compensate for fewer ties in real life. My mobile does make it a lot easier to not have to go out and meet people, especially if I'm traveling, because my people are in my pocket. The truth is, sometimes I don't want to meet and hang out with new people all the time. I want the alone time. I enjoy being in retreat mode. I can create and concentrate and cultivate. Yet, the urge to reach for my phone and see which of the people I love or that I'm connected to have sent me a message, liked a message, left a comment can be much stronger when I don't have physical interaction with others. And again, as a side note, I wrote this just before we went into the lockdowns of 2020. So you can imagine that the impact then of having all of that alone time for 18 months had both on me, but had on many, many people. I have access to my soul tribe across the world who have gravitated into my life naturally, both through being out in the world and through being online, which I see as a good thing. However, it does enable me to go into hermit mode and I have noticed how I can hide out for quite long periods of time, longer than I would without my device. I find myself lost in an endless scroll and think, what am I doing? Get out of the house now. But I don't. I feel nervous or afraid to go out, especially at night by myself, and more so as I get older. I choose instead to pacify myself with social media, with YouTube or with Netflix, etc. As I talk a lot about in my first book, there are so many positives that we get from social media. But these positives do not cancel out the negatives. I now see that they coexist. The like hunting and constant checking is not a good thing for me. It can become a nervous tick at times and it can actually make me feel physically nauseous, especially when I pick up my phone for what feels like the 50th millionth time that day. By researching and writing about where I'm out of balance, by saying the truth of these things out loud, and by becoming more aware of it, this work is helping me to heal it. I decided to get more informed. As well as reading books on the topic, I'd taken a digital wellbeing course by the University of York, 
And also subsequently, I did the digital well-being diploma with Consciously Digital, which I hadn't done at the time of writing this book. In the course with York University, they share, in a nutshell, when it comes to mental well-being and mental health, digital media is like a gust of air. It can fuel as much as blow out a fire. Some of the best ways that I've found to stop myself checking or relying on my phone so much is to switch the phone into airplane mode, put it in another room or give myself time with activities that don't involve a screen. Spending time with my cat Crystal or sitting in the garden, leaving the phone inside sounds like such simple things but it is crazy how much the phone was always coming along for the ride and then distracting me. Reading a book with the phone off, learning a musical instrument. I tried to learn the kalimba, which is like a small handheld instrument. Going for a walk without my phone or calling up a friend and asking to hang out in person. Making sure my phone is always in my bag or on silent mode and not given attention when with people have all been really simple but effective. In an article by the New York Times called Stop Googling, Let's Talk by Sherry Turkle, she shares that studies of conversation both in the laboratory and in natural settings show that when two people are talking, the mere presence of a phone on the table between them or in the periphery of their vision changes what they talk about and the degree of connection that they feel. People keep the conversation on topics where they don't mind being interrupted. They don't feel as invested in each other. Even a silent phone disconnects us. Our mobile device is so many things. It's our safety net. It's our memories. It's our access to the information of the entire world. It's navigation. It's our friends. It's a currency converter, a time buddy, a calculator. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Having the phone so close all the time also means having the dopamine hit and addiction of social media available all the time too. It is difficult to remove social media from the mix without deleting the apps from the phone. I also tell myself social media is important because it's my work, which is true. This has stopped me from removing Facebook and Instagram from my phone, although I know if I removed them, my usage would would drop massively and my addiction would have more time to detox. Maybe that's a next step for me, but I know it feels uncomfortable and with my work, pretty impossible too. My device is a support tool in living life on my own and I worry that I would feel lost and alone without it. It's empowering, it's connective, but perhaps deleting these apps is an experiment I need to try in order to strengthen my well-being and lessen my dependence on them. 
It's a double-edged sword. In Digital Minimalism on Living Better with Less Technology, Cal Newport recommends instead of taking time to declutter our technologies, instead just go for rapid transformation by having a break from all optional technologies for 30 days, using the time to rediscover activities and behaviours you enjoy outside of tech before reintroducing the optional tech and deciding what value it serves in your life. I recommend this book if you're wanting to learn and understand ways to liberate from technology overload. Another book that is currently blowing my mind on this topic of digital mindfulness and balance is by Dr. Doreen Dodgen-McGee, a psychologist with 25 years of experience working with people and their relationships to technology. Her book, Deviced, Balancing Life and Technology in a Digital World, lights me up and calms me down and helps to heal my digital imbalances with all that she shares. We recently met through the ethers of Instagram and that reminds me just how good social media can be and that total abstinence is not an answer for me. Finding a new balanced way forward has to be my future. But oh, how some of what she writes hits some tender spots for me. We're not consciously aware of how our dedication to our devices might have limited our talk time and social opportunities in our embodied spaces. That was by Doreen. Her book is full of wisdom and practical things to try with buckets of love and kindness. So if you're struggling with any kind of this stuff as well, I highly recommend it as a healing tool to test you and to support you. This addiction to social media and screens is not the only out of balance or potentially toxic scenario on our planet at this time. If we took a proper look at things, we would see so much that needs changing. The areas of our food industry which confuse us with chemicals, often with a view to get us hooked. The pharmaceutical industry with millions hooked on painkillers and opiates. The diet and beauty industry with their products full of chemicals, their marketing focused on shaming natural bodies and ageing in order to sell products. How badly we treat the environment, how badly we treat each other. When you look into the tricks of the trade, there are multiple levels of manipulation and toxicity to see. Capitalist business, patriarchy, profit over people, over animals, over the earth. This is part of a global human journey and the issues we currently face are not just a social media or Facebook issue. If we think of ourselves as one big organism, the holographic universe, the oneness, then where we are and what I see makes more sense to me. Industries and corporations want us hooked so they can make bigger profits without considering or really truly caring about the effect it's having long-term on us humans, on our bodies, our mental health, or on our overall wellness and well-being. There is a reason we have anxiety and health issues on the rise. And although we're waking up to this, I believe people power and consumer actions will be what makes the most difference in the long term. 
money talks. We do have power. We are their product, their commodity, their consumers. We are the data. We are the users. We are the drug. Governments and telecom companies are soon going to be installing 5G in many parts of the Western world, if they've not already started, without properly testing what it does to our physical bodies or to the environment long term, to the bugs, the bees, the animals and the trees. From research that I've seen, it's still unclear as to how these shortwave frequencies will affect all life over time, which is why places like Brussels and Japan and Glastonbury are saying no, not until more testing has been carried out. And as we move out of the Piscean Age and into the Aquarian Age, it's going to be up to each of us to play our part in cleaning up healing up and growing up, upgrading our timelines to the prophesied golden age. The Aquarian age will be dominated by networks and information. The key to astrological sign Aquarius is I know. This is the age of information. Nothing is secret anymore. All information is available at your fingertips. Where the Piscean Age was organised in a vertical up and down structure of hierarchy, the Aquarian Age is organised in a horizontal network, opening the world up to true equality. That was from an article called The Aquarian Shift. What will be different? With this happening at many levels of our society in lots of ways, it may feel like some kind of planetary destiny. The old patriarchal energy has been at play in the shadow of industry and culture for as long as both the history books and I can remember. The birthing and return of the mother, a feminine energy, in 2020 is prepping to be powerful. This is an extract from Lorna Bevan's Hair in the Moon Astrology Report, where she says, In this next wave sweeping the event horizon, the 2020 to 2030 great transformation, we are entering a time when transparency, authenticity and openness are going to be critical. This is not wishful new age thinking, but the only safe way to thrive. If you want to live peacefully, abundantly and congruently in the years to come, you must walk your talk. Why? Because your walk will be visible. If there is any degree of hypocrisy in your life, you are in danger of exposure. But think of it as having a wound cleaned or a bone reset. When people expect you to operate in a way that is consistent with the values you express, So wherever there is dissonance between your value system and your actions, close the gap. Is this the apocalypse? The great unveiling, the great shift, the ascension, the wave which so many different civilizations, cultures and religious texts speak of? If this is happening now, During this period we're now in, bringing everything into the light collectively, we might just change the trajectory to a betterment of ourselves and mankind. The Holy Grail is us.
If you enjoyed this, please think about subscribing and sharing it with your friends. I produce these for free as part of my service work and also for sharing my thoughts and feelings about social media with you. If you'd like to find more information about social media for a new age or about me, Katie Brockhurst, your author and host, you can go to my website, socialmediaforanewage.com or buy my books, Social Media for a New Age 1, 2 and 3 are a series designed to support you on your journey with social media and with digital well-being. <laughs>